Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Open Mic. Today, we have Gilbert Poole on our show. He spent 32 years in a Michigan prison for a murder he absolutely did not commit. He was arrested at just 22 years old, and he lost the best years of his life. Behind bars, he lost both of his parents, his family. He studied the law in hopes of finding a better way out. Then he hooked up with Marla Mitchell Shishan, who you may remember from an episode we did here on Open Mic a few episodes ago. She works at the Western Michigan University Cooley Law School Innocence Project, and she worked tirelessly with lots of interns and students to secure Mr. Poole's release. It didn't happen quickly, but persistence paid off, and now Mr. Poole is a free man, and he joins us today to share with us his unthinkable journey. Welcome to Open Mic, Gilbert Poole. Thank you, Mike. Truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what you're going to hear on my podcast, Open Mic. I'm going to tell you things that most lawyers won't tell you. We expose the truth and bring you justice. I want you to go for the win in law and in life. It's so nice to be here. And, um, you know, we, we, we interviewed your attorney and then you sent me, um, a really nice email. Why don't you tell our listeners and viewers, you know, what you thought when you heard that interview and why you thought you wanted to come on the show? Well, Mike, I heard, I heard my attorney explain, uh, the legal aspects of the, the case and how it proceeded from there. But we also touched upon some of the struggles that I had inside trying to be heard. And uh, I think it's important that, uh, that people realize that uh, I wasn't just sitting in the prison uh, waiting for somebody to come rescue me. I worked tirelessly filing everything I could. And it, it probably inhibited the attorney's ability to get me out too, because uh, like uh, Miss Mitchell uh, alluded to previously, uh, uh, the courts are not interested in re-entertaining claims that's already been presented. So uh, my efforts to get myself out probably inhibited their ability to get me out too, but it preserved a lot of the issues also. So, um, and I thought it was important to, uh, to express the, the struggles that uh, prisoners go through trying to be heard. Uh, it's a procedural mess. I mean, if you're not if you're not a lawyer, uh, you're not going to get the same consideration. It, it's it's outlandish to to that some of these judges uh, won't um, read every single word and understand what you're going through and read between the lines sometimes and and realize that there are lots of innocent people sitting in prison. May of 2021. Oakland County Circuit Judge Ray Lee Chabot set aside your murder conviction. We saw the photos of you coming out of custody, arms raised in victory. What was it like to walk out a free man after 32 years in prison for a crime? Not only didn't you commit, but you knew you didn't commit. And you, and you, with, you said and proclaimed your innocence from day one. What? Try to describe that feeling. Uh, it was absolutely surreal. Um, I didn't believe it. Uh, I knew probably two days before that I was going to go before the judge. Um, yeah, choked up. I mean, I, I didn't know how to act. I'm so far removed from society. I didn't know what to expect. Um, it was just really strange walking out and, interacting with people without handcuffs on, you know, no fences around me. I could walk or go wherever I wanted to. And yet I didn't want to go. I didn't want to leave the company of the people that was walking me out. Um, 
I was totally dependent upon uh, the people from uh, the Innocence Project and uh, the Conviction Integrity Unit to uh, assist me because I wouldn't know where to go. And you went in at age 22, came out around age 55. And I mean, that's a lifetime. I mean, tell, tell us, tell us some of the things that, that, that happened uh, while you were in prison to your family that you can never get back. Well, that's the hardest part. You know, people can be strong and, and get through uh, trials and tribulations in prison. Uh, but it's the, it's the mental aspect that really gets to you when my mother caught cancer and uh, she was given six months to live. You can't get that back. You can't be there with her. You can't reach out and hug her. She was a thousand miles away in Las Vegas. There was absolutely nothing I could do. And uh, um, you know, I, I talked to her on the phone as much as I could, but eventually she succumbed to the, to uh, the cancer and uh, there was no attending the funeral. Just, just deal with it in the prison, you know? Yeah. So you kind of have to isolate yourself and uh, not show weakness or, you know, be strong and, you know, much the other people, you know? So it's, uh, Right, right after that, my grandmother, she passed away. That was, uh, that was another blow. And it wasn't long. My father passed away. But by this time I'm numb. I, I, it, it's, uh, it seems like hope is fading. You know, all contact I had with the with the outside world was gone now. When I came to prison, I didn't attach myself to friends and say, hey, you know, you're going to communicate with me the whole time I'm in here. You know, I have life without parole. I couldn't expect somebody in the free world to, you know, um, stay in contact with me with all that, all that time, you know. So, uh, you know, I pretty much cut everybody loose and uh, dealt with it on my own. But when my family passed away, yeah, that's that's when prison became real to me. Prison was really rough then. Did you have any siblings growing up? Uh, I had a stepbrother and a stepsister on my father's side that I did not know until after I was incarcerated. So no, okay. not while I was growing up. Wow, what a lonely feeling that must have been. I'm I'm so sorry you had to deal with that. Well, I tell you, uh. I found some friends in, in prison uh, that I kind of attached myself to. And uh, just, you know, I hung with them basically exclusively. You know, I, I had a prison factory job for a while, for more than a decade. Um, but uh, I mainly just, uh, it was, it was a veteran that I, I helped take care of. He was handicapped. So, you know, that was my best friend. And um, eventually he was transferred to another prison. I was transferred to another prison. So, uh, you know, I reevaluated who I was hanging around with, you know, and, and uh, I came to the church and sought comfort in the church and the, uh, the outside people coming in from the, uh, from the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And uh, I kind of adopted them as my family. And uh, my legal work that I was doing, I was filing things relentlessly trying to get out. And uh, I wasn't getting anywhere improper. wasn't happening. The, the courts just wouldn't give me the time of day. So I gave up, you know, and I said, you know, I gave, gave it to God. I said, if you want me out, you'll get me out. And uh, eventually, things started happening. Um, the innocent Marla Mitchell, Sishon, and the Cooley Law School Innocence Project had been relentlessly filing on my behalf. And they went above and beyond what they were 
<clears throat> signed on to do initially they only did dna testing yeah but uh um, well, let me let me ask you before we get into the details of that and we are going to get into those um and let's not forget that marla did you know go into detail about your defense but tell me about gilbert pool at 22 years old when you were arrested i mean what were you what were you up to at that point in your life well well mike i was i was a typical uh, young man, I guess. Well, maybe not so typical. I was kind of a, a rowdy teenager. Um, but I had came to the realization that uh, I had to grow up at some point. So I, uh, I became a, a, a plumber, worked for a plumbing company down in, down in North Carolina. And uh, I started doing plumber repair work with another plumber, a licensed plumber. I was not licensed. But, uh, you know, I started collecting, collecting the tools and equipment, you know, to eventually uh, be licensed and do it on my own. Um, so when I came to prison, I lost, lost all that. So um, tell me, tell young me, man, a young man going to prison, mm -hmm. I kind of, you know, was absolutely, I was taken from North Carolina all the way up to Michigan. So it was really a. Uh, it was really tough trying to establish myself in a place that I didn't know anybody and had you know, no visits. You know, it was, um, it was kind of rough. Certainly I, wasn't easy. No, of course not. So tell me you had a girlfriend at the time when you were arrested, you had a girlfriend who ends up playing a horrible pivotal role in all this. What was her name? Right. Her at the time, her name was Connie cook. I don't know what her name is now. Were you guys living together at the time? I had met her in Michigan and uh, we went down to North Carolina when I moved back to North Carolina and uh, started doing plumbing work. I, I brought her with her. And, uh, you know, as I, as I changed, changed from the uh, young man mindset into trying to establish a, a life for myself there, uh, she wasn't really on board with settling down. She was still, uh, it didn't end well. No, and, uh, your, your relationship ended. Right. And, and, then, and you I asked her to leave. Okay. I asked her to leave and uh, she went to the police department down there and uh, asked them for a ride back to Michigan. And uh, obviously they did, they don't give rides to Michigan. She said, well, my boyfriend said he'd, he'd kill me if, if I stayed here. Well, that was that was a lie, but they said, yeah, well, that's that's a threat. But, you know, still, it's not going to get you a ride to Michigan. She says, well, he's killed before and I believe him. Oh, wait a minute. Now they took interest. You know, they um, they perked up then and they called Pontiac, Michigan, where we were where she was from. And uh, they had an unsolved murder there. And uh, that was like five or six months before this conversation. You're right. Right. Okay. So, so five or I just want to set the stage because this is a fascinating, horrible story. But five or six months later, after this murder, you're you were in Michigan on the date of the murder, and then you a few days later were down in North Carolina plumbing, and then she went to the police and said, you know, give me a ride. My boyfriend has killed before. He'll kill me if you don't if I don't get out of here. They and then and then you know keep going with the story. Well. Um they contacted the Pontiac police and they had an unsolved murder in Pontiac. Um, and they came down to North Carolina and while I was at work, unbeknownst to me, didn't know anything about it at the time. Um, they pulled up to my um, mobile home that we were staying in and cleaned it out, took everything in there. Um, every stitch of clothing and everything and brought it back to Michigan and went through it looking for evidence. Um, they didn't find anything because there wasn't anything to find. Um, I thought that the girlfriend had just came back and broke into the, the mobile home and took everything. So, you know, I say, hey, that's what she needs. You know, she can have it. You know, I moved to a different apartment. It wasn't until that was on Thanksgiving. It wasn't until Christmas Day or the day after Christmas. I was out doing uh, service calls um, 
pretty busy day for a plumber. Um, and the police contacted my office and said uh, they wanted to talk to me. Said, okay, well, I'll meet you there at 5 o'clock. So I showed up at the office, and they said, uh, yeah, you're under arrest for a murder in Michigan. What? <laughs> okay. That's this is a joke, right? You know, there's no way. But uh, I said, no, it's it's real. I said, okay. Well, I told the secretary there, I said, I'll be back. We got to go clear this up. And uh, that was the last time I had feet on free ground. Uh, so six and a half months later, you're in North Carolina. Uh, you get arrested for Robert Mija, Mijia. How do you pronounce his last name? I think it's Mejia. Mejia's uh, murder. He, his body was found in a running path in Pontiac in June of 1988. He'd been stabbed, last seen alive at a Pontiac bar. Um, and several bar patrons provided a description of a man. Uh that some say looked like you. There was a drawing. It was posted in the Oakland Press. Um, I'm going to try to find that drawing if I can and show it to our viewers. But uh, did that drawing look like you? No. No. This is, um, I wasn't worried, even though I waived extradition back to Michigan. Um, I, my, I had my mother hire a lawyer over the telephone, just random found somebody. Um, he came to see me in the Oakland County Jail and uh, told me, you know, don't worry about it. <laughs> they run a composite drawing in the newspaper and showed me a copy of the Oakland Press at the time when the picture ran. Had no resemblance to me. Um, actually, there were two composite drawings in the Oakland Press. Neither one of them even came close to me. And uh, don't worry about it. It's not you. This is an easy case. So I was just waiting on trial. Um, but it only went that way. I, I, right. So we know how it turned out. We know we, we know that. But let's talk about some of this evidence because there was bite mark evidence that played a pivotal role. Your ex-girlfriend uh, played a pivotal role. Um, Let's let's talk about the bite mark evidence. So first of all, you've never heard of this person. You never heard of Robert Mejia before, correct? That's correct. The bar that they people said they saw you in. Had you ever been to that bar before? No. So anybody who said you were there with him was mistaken or lying. Right. Um, the way this the way this the evidence played out was, um, they had. Uh, through discovery, we found out that there was a uh, trace evidence left on the body. Mr. Mejia was stabbed to death, but there was blood found on the body that did not belong to him. There were hair samples found on the body, actually dried in the blood uh, that did not belong to him. There were uh, uh, beer bottles by the body that had fingerprints on them. Uh, and there was a bruise on his arm that resembled, it was a circular, bru circular bruise that resembled a bite mark. Um, they issued a warrant for me, but he's saying, again, I'm not worried about it. It's, it's not me, nothing's gonna match. Um, and it turns out it did not match. The blood found on the body did not match the victim. It did not match me, the hair, through visual comparison, did not match me. Um, but when they came to trial, they had a forensic odontologist, Dr. Alan J. Warnick, come in and testify. And a forensic odontologist, uh, his, his profession is identifying um, corpses from the dental records. So if you have teeth on a body, you can compare that to x-rays and dental records and say, this is the person. Well, he took the, um, these techniques of comparison and applied it to skin. And they have done it before. And the Michigan courts had allowed it because you have, uh, 
when you have overlays, you know, uh, tracings of the bite mark and, and x-rays, you can do a comparison and the jury can see this. He can see, they can see and judge for themselves. The problem is the rules make allowances for the expert to form an opinion and express his personal opinion. So he took his science of comparison, which was by no way conclusive and attached his personal opinion to it. And his personal opinion was given credibility because of his experience in identifying bodies. So um, he gets up on the stand and says, in all dental certainty, it was the defendant that bit the victim. The odds of winning the lottery is better. The odds of it not being the defendant that bit the victim was 2.4 billion to one or something, something to that effect. It was absolutely astronomical claims and numbers that he threw out. And a layperson sitting on a jury has been instructed that this person has been stipulated to as an expert. He's an expert odontologist, but he has taken his field of odontology and stretched it super thin and then attached a personal opinion on it that has no basis in science. It's not reproducible. It's not uh, something another person would come up with these same numbers. So they've allowed this forensic science, which maybe a good investigative tool to be expanded into something that was absolutely junk. And this junk science uh, supported Miss Cook's testimony that said, I told her I did it. So as you're sitting there listening to this testimony, your head must have been exploding. Well, you know, I'm sitting beside my attorney, my attorney, had a pretty laid back uh, stance in the courtroom. He was sitting back, just listening to the to the trial. Very little cross examination, or he put on absolutely no defense witnesses whatsoever. Uh, he had no answer to anything that was put out. He did question the the admissibility of the bite mark identification evidence. Before trial, he questioned, he asked for uh, uh, the ability to, uh, I believe it was Vordier, the witness, mm -hmm. before it's it was introduced to the to the jury for admissibility purposes. But it seemed the judge to me, allowed it. The judge allowed it. Right. It seemed to me like there was a little um, shuffling going on at the time. And that didn't happen. So the, instead of establishing his, uh, his field that he was going to testify to, it was just, it was just live testimony. So when the expert was allowed to testify to these astronomical claims, um, my attorney did say, well, this is not as accurate as a fingerprint comparison, is it? And he says, no, well, I'm really, I'm not supposed to make a positive identification from it because it's not, you don't have points of comparison that can be, uh, say, you have to have seven points for a positive match. It's not possible. So the, um, the Air American Board of Forensic Odontology had warned him not to give this testimony. However, in his opinion, and this is where it just went off the rails. So when he gives this opinion, uh, you know, I'm looking at my attorney. I said, oh, Come on, you you can't right. you can't let this go. Um, but there's not a lot you can't unpour water, you know. Right. It should have been an automatic mistrial at that point, uh, because you're right. You can't unring a bell, as we say. Yeah. And that's why you do a voir dire to see what the witness is going to say before they say it in front of a jury. The judge thought that this person was credible. He stretched and gave his opinion evidence that you did it and that that two billion to one that you it was you and sitting as a lay person on a jury and you're right everybody agrees this guy's an expert at at that point you know that's a hard thing to get around plus you have your ex-girlfriend making up lies about you saying you told her you killed somebody in a park i mean 
it's ridiculous. Let me just point out uh, for our listeners that bike bite mark comparison uh, evidence since your trial has been debunked by the National Academy of Sciences, the President's Council of Advisors, even the American Society of Odontology no longer stands by the practices used in your case. So it sounds like the scientific community has agreed with you that uh, this evidence shouldn't be used, and it's uh, my—I I doubt it's being used as much or as frequently uh, to hurt other people like it was used to hurt you. Um, you know, Mike. Remarkably, prosecutors still try to bring it in, based upon based upon bad law, and I say bad law because the law that allowed it in my case. Um, was very basic. They said the jury can make comparisons for themselves and allow them the testimony, uh, allow the testimony in. And it's it's really, it shouldn't be in there at all because the jury is not qualified uh, in these sciences to discern which is, which is a stretch or which is absolutely reproducible, reproducible science. It's, this type of evidence, you know, I, I, we've, we've done, I think, about 12 exonerees right now. And in every almost every trial, there's a piece of evidence, uh, either it, whether I'm talking to the defense attorney uh, or somebody who eventually got them out or, or to the exoneree themselves. There's a piece of evidence at trial that it's so hard to rebut. And your lawyer didn't hire an expert to rebut him, didn't do a very good job cross-examining him. And a jury is left with unimpeachable or unimpeached evidence of of uh, an expert's opinion saying you did it. I right. mean, I, what what were they supposed to do? Right. I, not believe it because of why you your lawyer didn't give them a, a reason to not believe it. You know, I can't be angry at the jury because. I mean, I'm I'm sitting there keeping score on a, on a pad, you know, I'm marking. Well, that was one for our team. Oh, that's well, that's one for their team. I quit keeping score at that point. I told my lawyer, I said, I'm sunk. There's, what are you going to do? Who are you going to put on trial? I mean, who are you going to put on the stand to, to, to correct this? We we got to fight this. I don't know how this happened, but it, it can't stand like this. And uh, he had no answer. He said, well, you know, I'm pretty much done. I said, well, no. <laughs> yeah. At least put me up. on the stand. Put me on the stand. Somebody has to say I didn't do it, you know. But you know, a defendant getting on the stand and say I didn't do it wasn't me. You know, that didn't carry any weight whatsoever. I think uh, eleven out of the twelve people we've interviewed did not take the stand in their own defense. I haven't. I haven't been keeping score. But but yeah, you're right. That is a, and it's probably you know I don't do criminal law, but that's it's you know it's it's that uh, that rule that's followed by 98% of defense attorneys is probably there for a reason. But in your case, if you both thought you were going down, no matter what, what did you have to lose? And I know we're playing Monday morning quarterback and it may not have made a difference, but at least you would have been able to tell your story. Yeah. Um, so let's just talk about your ex uh, girlfriend who lied about uh, what you told her. Where did she get this information about this murder did she even know about it or did she just make it up when she was telling the cops he's killed somebody before? Like, why did she use that? Where did she get that from? Did you ever figure that out? Well, we were in Pontiac at the time. Um, she got the newspaper and uh, she's from that area. So whether she knew the person before or it was part of her circle of friends there, in Pontiac, um, I don't know. Did you and her when the murder happened? Did you guys talk about it? No. She didn't say, "Hey, did you see this guy was killed at the park or anything like that?" No. And you two never visited that bar before. No. So, and she got a lot of information wrong, right? When she was talking to the police and and describing what you told her. I mean, some of the facts weren't even yeah. right. Um, through looking at the transcripts of her initial interviews, um, after they got her back to Michigan, uh, they started noticing some inconsistencies with the facts of the case. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, she said that I had killed the guy in January. And the guy was actually killed in June. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a six-month difference here. <laughs> um, she was... Uh, she was going off memory what she had been told or read and uh, apparently her memory wasn't too good. Um, And she testified uh, at trial, I assume she did. And when questioned about now, here's, here's a funny part. Uh, They gave her a polygraph test that she failed. And that she worked with the polygraph examiner until she got it right. So the uh, prosecutor got on this, got before the judge out of the presence of the jury and cautioned my attorney that he could not question her about why she changed her testimony or why she lied to police because she knew she had to take a polygraph test. What? And if the if the attorney opens the door for her taking a polygraph test, then they'll bring in the fact that she took one and passed it. No. So my attorney was not allowed to question her about changing her testimony or why she changed her testimony. Hey, well, that's outrageous. <laughs> that's the most outrageous thing I think I've heard in a long time. That's just not even accurate in the least bit. And the fact that the Court of Appeals and nobody picked up on that, that's reversible error in my opinion. Well, you know, there were a lot of reversible errors if you, you know, in hindsight, if you look at the case law in comparison, uh, in my opinion, but, you know, obviously I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I have a ninth grade education. I'm a plumber. You know, I, you know, I got to learn these things. Uh, I got to study the law and figure it out myself. Um, and my presentation to the courts probably was not on the skill level as a licensed attorney, (laughs) but uh, I think it was readable enough to get the point across. Um, I think it's a major flaw in the system though, that the, uh, that the, they don't give, I know there's case law that says that uh, an improper prisoner is supposed to be given, be given leeway, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, in their pleadings, you know, in the, in the reading of them. But, in reality, a lot of the issues that I put forth were either not addressed or just disregarded as harmless. Um, and without being an attorney um, skilled enough to defend that position, uh, they just become um, rulings that I can't revisit. So once I get a bad ruling, that's the law of the case now. So you can't go back and, and re, re, uh, re-litigate this issue, even when I do get an attorney. So I created a, a procedural mess for whoever stepped in to help. Right. But, you know, you can't just sit there and hope somebody's going to come and help. There's so many people there writing these innocent clinics, hundreds and hundreds of people, and they only take a handful of cases. Right. Um, one other, let's talk about the DNA evidence, the blood evidence. So we've already discussed that the, that the blood the hairs uh, found at the scene didn't match you. The bite mark evidence didn't match you, but the guy said it did match you. Um, and then there was some pebbles that had blood on them that were never tested. Am I getting that right? They were tested. Okay. Here's another um, questionable, in my opinion, if I'm allowed. Um procedure in the courtroom the forensic doctor who did the test initially that did the hair comparison and the testing of the blood blood on the body on the stones that was found on the uh on the victim um did a report and in that report it said that none of it matched me that was pursuant to the search warrant that they issued. Right. However, prior to trial, the prosecutor asked for a substitution in experts because the, the doctor who did the forensic science scientist who did the um, initial test, Mr. Woodford, 
was ill. So he was asking that his assistant, Miss Melinda Jackson, uh, reproduce the test so she can come in and testify to her findings. And the judge allowed it. My attorney stipulated to it. Yeah, okay. Didn't defend that position. And what happened was she reproduced the test that the prosecutor was going to use. The hair comparison was not, he was not going to use that because it didn't match me. The blood test on the, on the foreign blood did not match me. So the prosecutor wasn't going to use that. Mm-hmm. He did not, she did not reproduce that. So therefore there was no report saying that the blood didn't match me or the hair didn't match me, but we had this initial report. So when my attorney stepped up and said, well, what about this blood that didn't match him? She said, well, I didn't do those reports. Um, well, what about the hair? She says, well, I'm not trained in hair comparison. I didn't do that. I mean, I looked at it, but I didn't do those comparisons. So the prosecutor stepped in and told the judge, he says, your honor, I feel like I've deceived the court. I said that Mr. Woodford was not available because he was sick. Well, he, he really is. And I got him on the phone. If you, if defense counsel would like to talk to him, he can. So they took a break. And my attorney talked to this expert on the, or this forensic scientist on the phone. And they came back and they said, well, uh, I've talked to counsel. Counsel was able to talk to the other expert. And there was some questionable evidence that was not reproduced. So in lieu of having him come in, we'll just introduce his report into evidence. Here's a key factor. The prosecutor said, the report says all the blood that was tested and all the hair that was tested belonged to the victim. There was nothing unusual about the report, but it's in evidence if you'd like to see it. That was a lie because that evidence excluded me. And counsel allowed it to be entered into the evidence without reading it to the jury, without telling him this doesn't match the defendant. Mm. Come on. This was... (laughs) This was my saving grace. How do you the silver? How do you not address this? What? But that was introduced into the the report. The original report was introduced into evidence, but it was never read or never expounded upon for the jury. So when I went to appeal and said this excludes me, the argument became: Well, the jury had it. If they could see it, if they wanted to, they must have seen it and disregarded it. And your lawyer just didn't pick up on that or he was asleep. Well, no, he, or he was, I, believe me, I was, I was kicking him under the table, but it, it just, I don't know. Is this guy still practicing law all these years later? No, I don't think he's alive right now. I think See, he passed away since then, but, uh, that's so maddening, man. Woo, that is maddening. That it is surreal. That, I mean, oh. if you take it from my position, I'm sitting there thinking, I got faith in the American justice system. Don't worry about it. It's going to be all be all right. You're innocent. Don't worry about it. You're going to get through it. It's just a matter of the process. Okay, fine. And then when everything fails to such a degree, it's like, what? (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Really? I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable to me. So let's fast forward 30 years or 28 years, 2016, a DNA testing of that same sample and other blood samples confirmed that other than the victim, your blood was nowhere there. Um, this is, you know, five years before you were released. Uh, tell us about the 2000. I know there was lots of legal wrangling at that tested. I know they originally denied it. I know they, uh, Supreme court of Michigan finally said, bullshit. You get to, you get to test. Um, and that test was favorable, but that was five years ago. So tell, tell us this a little is, bit about that. This is where that ruling came in. This is where that little play in the courtroom came in, came into, came into play because they said, since the prosecutor entered the report of the original scientist into the evidence that the jury could see, they were already aware that the blood didn't match me. So that became harmless error in light of the bite mark testimony and the girlfriend's testimony saying, I told her I did it. There's other evidence 
to support my conviction. So therefore, the DNA testing that excludes me, well, the jury already knew it anyway. So I know that you got I know that, circular I know, logic. You can't get yeah, around. It, it makes no sense. So I know that you, you know, uh, we talked about your lawyer. We've interviewed your lawyer. She eventually got uh, the Michigan Attorney General's Conviction Integrity Unit involved. You were their first case, I believe. Um, Attorney General Dana Nessel um, spearheaded it. But what was the evidence that uh, convinced them that this was all a big mistake? You know, I, I want to be clear, Mike. Uh, when the ruling that I just described to you was when I introduced this evidence. Um, when, I tried, when I tried to uh, raise these issues, when the law school got involved, now they have to address issues that's already been presented to the court. So then you have to get past this other procedural hurdle. And you know uh, that the standards change when you're, when you're on trial, it's innocent until proven guilty. When you're on appeal, it's you have to be innocent beyond all reasonable doubt. I think it's clear and convincing and, or something crazy. I mean, yeah, there's there's a different standard. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, like I said, by this time, I had given up. I'd given up. I did all I could do, and I left it in the hands of counsel. Uh, the technical aspects of the... DNA testing and the evidence that they came up with. Um, I thank God for it, but I don't really understand every aspect of it. Okay. Um, and I would, hate, I would hate to expound upon it, you know, and not have any knowledge of the, uh, or misstate something, but they did come up with new evidence that opened the case up for reexamination. And opening the case up for re-examination examines everything as a whole once again. And thank God they started a conviction integrity unit because the conviction integrity unit was able to look beyond the procedural mess that I got myself into and beyond the already litigated part of the res judicata and actually look at everything and say, wait a minute, <laughs> how did this happen? This is, this is absolutely ridiculous. They spent an entire year going over every aspect of that case and did not find one thing that tied me to the case other than the theatrics of a courtroom. You know, we, we spent some time in the last couple of episodes of Open Mic talking about how uh, wonderful these conviction integrity units are. We learned on the last episode that there are 100 of them in the country out of six thousand prosecution offices prosecutorial offices a hundred and obviously more are needed thank god that uh we have several in michigan including dana nessel's office um i read her statement that she came up to you after you were released is that true absolutely she came right up to you and what did she say well she told me she was so sorry that this happened to me and uh, she asked me if there was anything that I needed or I, that they could do in their power to help me uh, transition back into society. They would do what they can to help me. Um, she was absolutely uh, sincere, and you could see the tears in her eyes because mm -hmm. it wasn't her fault. Mm -mm. I, I don't blame her. Mm -mm. Uh, I don't blame anybody. I do blame. Yeah, you know, I can. I can probably find some malice in my heart somewhere, but you know, I can't, I can't dwell on what happened in the past. Um, I'm just so glad that uh, uh, these units are popping up all around the country, but they can't do it on their own. Uh, it has to be a collaborative effort between the Ennis's projects, the conviction integrity units, and even the prosecutors, because even if the, the conviction integrity unit um, decided that I was wrongfully convicted, they still have to get the prosecutor to agree to it so they don't have to go back to trial and retrial the case. And that has become an issue in, in some states, mm -hmm. because even though uh, even though a person has been wrongfully convicted down in Kansas City, Missouri, um, uh, 
there's a case where a guy was determined to be innocent of the crime, but yet the prosecutor, for whatever reason, uh, was not convinced and won't let him go, uh, won't stipulate to the release. So it's another fight. And uh, and then you have the uh, the conviction integrity units are small. They're not really large, uh, really large units. And uh, when you have a massive amounts of applications to, 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 to sift through, uh, there's probably lots more people that are just sitting in the wings waiting. And uh, we really need to re revisit some of these old cases, especially if you have something like the bite mark identification evidence, just for example, how many cases have that, have that, has that expert testified in? And those people are still in, still in. We talked about that. I mean, there's probably hundreds that one. So, you know, how much staff do they need to go through hundreds of cases and say, well, is this, is this conviction still legitimate or is it, is this something that's, that, that has just contaminated the whole proceeding to where we, we got to start anew. And then, so it's, it's a big mess. Um, probably lots of funding needs to be ha uh, allocated for this. And, uh, uh, and uh, uh, somebody needs to be a champion for those inside because there's a lot of people that don't have a voice. Uh, uh, they can't express it adequately to get a review. Well, thank God. I was, I was fortunate enough to have the Ennis's project on my case that really believed in it. And uh, Ms. Marla Mitchell um, and her team, there's been hundreds of lawyers that's been through that law school have seen my case. I, I could fill a stadium with people that's worked on my case. Hmm. Um, and I don't know of anybody that said, nah, we should drop this. So uh, the, the stars really aligned for me. But, you, uh, had, you had some angels looking out for you. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it strikes me, Gilbert, 32 years you were in. You've been out for th not even three full months. We're having this conversation not even three months after you've been out. And you're, you're, you're not upset. You're, I mean, you're, you, you said you barely could find, you could maybe find some malice in your heart. That is such a loving and wonderful thing for you that you're able to forgive quickly. You're able to try to enjoy your life, try to get some normalcy without all of that hatred, because you know, you, uh, you, you know that you're not going to be able to live a happy life, a joyful life, a fulfilled life. If you are angry at everybody in, in the world and, the fact that you're not angry 90 days later is mind blowing. It's a lesson to me. It's a lesson to us all who get mad at people for doing little things. Thank and you. then, and, and, and listening to you is just, um, it's really beautiful. Well, I, you know, I can't take credit for that. I, I could, I can't explain it though. I spent 30 years being angry. It was, you know, I had to give up the anger because it's not my fight anymore. It's not about me anymore. I, I gave up, you know, I was, I was a victim just like the guy that got killed in my case. Um, fortunately I get another shot. I get another shot at life and I can't dwell on the past, but I can leave something behind. And if I leaving something behind is helping out any way I can. Um, if it's, uh, uh, speaking on the subject or bringing attention to the subjects or uh, working with the conviction integrity units of the prosecutor's office or the exonerees and, and trying to uh, get other people out that are struggling. Um, that's, that's all I got left. You know, I don't have, I'm, I'm too old to establish a retirement. So we, just, <laughs> I'm not going to go work in a factory. So, you know, Hey, it's a, uh, um, might as well make the best of it, you know, and yeah. try to try to leave a, a mark here on, on the, on this planet here. I love it.
I just have to get past the uh, the the mental health issues. I'm sorry to say, but uh, you can't spend 30 years in prison and come out a citizen. I'm still in. I still have the the residual distrust instilled in my brain from being in prison so long. You don't trust anybody in there. And I brought that with me out here. So I just have to get past this uh, reintegration process and uh, everything will go a lot smoother. But uh, for now, we're working through it. Well, I'm happy for you. I'm happy for you, sir. I'm, 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 when I read your story, I was overjoyed that, that justice came late, but it finally came for you. I'm happy that uh, I'm just happy that you're out. I hope that uh, you find peace and happiness and, and new friends. And I hope you find the mental health that you need. And if you need anything, you know, please, please let us know here at open mic. And if there's anything we can do for you, we would be honored. And uh, I hope that we get to meet one day in person. Um, and do you have any parting words for people listening to this show or watching this show that you'd like them to know? Um, put your faith in God and don't give up. I gave up. Unfortunately, I still got out. But uh, um, keep fighting. Stay in the law books. Uh, keep pursuing every remedy you can. Uh, if you're supposed to be out, you'll be out eventually. Okay. I'm going to leave it on that, Mr. Poole. Again, congratulations. Thank you for coming on Open Mic and take care of yourself. Thank you, Mike. Whew, an emotional one with Gilbert Poole, 32 years in prison for a murder he did not commit. Lots of errors, lots of things went wrong. And you heard it. You heard it from him. You heard it from him, his own words, his own voice. And uh, that was an intense one. So I thank him for coming on Open Mic. I thank you all for watching and listening. And hopefully you'll be commenting and sharing the episode with your loved ones. Because I think there's lots of good messages there. And uh, until next time, we'll see you here back on Open Mic.